Hello, and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Lara Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is January 9th, 2024. I've got to remember to say 2024 now. And I am delighted to be here with Jasmine El-Gamal. Jasmine is a former Middle East advisor at the Pentagon. She served for 22 years in public and private sector organizations, and I will have a link to a longer bio so you can see all about that. Um, she covered issues related to national security and international affairs, including as a consultant to the United Nations and the European Union. Um, Jasmine, thank you so much for joining me. I've been dying to get you on, on Occupied Thoughts, so thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Lara. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Fantastic. So the conversation Jasmine is excited to have with me, which I have been asking her all about now <laughs> for the past few weeks, is about escalation. Uh, Jasmine, some of you may have seen her. She's been doing a lot of news hits. She has been a commentator, uh, mainly, I think, on UK news. Jasmine is based yep, in London. Mostly talking about Israel's war on Gaza, and increasingly being asked to talk about rising concerns about regional escalation, which is very much on everyone's mind today. So let's just get right into it. <laughs> um, so I want to start narrow, and then we can zoom out to the bigger issues. So to start off with, I want to ask you to talk about Israel's war on Gaza. Um, and and I, I guess to start off, I was in a meeting not that long ago with a colleague who was visiting from Oslo, and we were talking about this, and he commented that, and this is not a direct quote, but he basically said he has never seen any country squander so much international goodwill so quickly as Israel has done in this conflict. And, you know, we're three months into this war now. It has become clear to most people um, that uh, there is a disconnect between what Israel said its objectives were, right? That's freeing the hostages and eradicating Hamas and its actual actions and policies. And I think more people are perhaps coming to the conclusion that there is a closer correlation between some of the statements we heard early on from Israeli politicians and officials um, that suggested more of an intent on displacement, ethnic cleansing, um, than the other objectives. So can you just briefly, or as long as you want, talk about your thoughts on this? And also for people in the audience whose knee-jerk reaction is, Yes, but what else could Israel have done after October 7th, um, if you could offer some thoughts on that as well? Absolutely. So um, I'll start with your last question first, because I think it's an important one. Um, I think that a lot of people that I've spoken to um, who live in the Middle East, for example, and who've had, you know, it kind of reminds me of 9-11. And I know that analogy has been done to death, but there are a couple of things I want to mention about it. I mean, one is, I remember when 9-11 happened and those attacks happened, how shocked Americans were and how they just felt. I mean, it was, it was a, a once in a lifetime thing for many of them. For many of them, this is something that was just absolutely um unthinkable right i mean it wasn't and analysts and people outside of the us were talking about it in this very objective way like this is the number of like why are you so upset it was 3000 people so much more you know so so much worse has happened and especially if you live in a country where you've just seen trauma and war and conflict and you have thousands of people dying by the day for long periods of time you would look at that and you would think like you changed the entire world because 3000 plus people died and they failed to recognize 
that not everybody's trauma is the same, okay? Trauma is not an objective, you know, comparison. You can't say by numbers, you can't say by events. A, a traumatic event is an event that's personal to someone that they feel traumatized by. And Americans were traumatized by 9-11. And that explained a lot of the things that happened afterwards. And similar to what you said about Israel, a lot of the goodwill that was squandered, um, we can come back to that later. But initially, initially, the, the the before Iraq, you know, just like right after the moment, people were in shock and there was solidarity and there was this feeling of who did this? We need to get them. We need to make sure this never happens again. Now, take that to an Israeli context and you have this previous immense trauma on the Israeli side right? You have the Holocaust people, you have still Holocaust survivors still living in Israel. And then for this to happen, and that trauma to, to be relived, and then it's just, it's immense. And I felt it, right? I mean, I, you, you have to, you have to understand that, first of all, baseline before we start talking about everything else. So when we look backwards and we say, well, what could Israel have done at that moment? I mean, obviously there was going to be a need to respond with some sort of big response to match the level of trauma, at least initially to say, as the Israeli government, to say, we we understand that this is a trauma. This is something shocking. We are, you know, we, we are here to protect you. Um, we're going to do something about this. I understand that also. But what separates leadership from ordinary people is knowing that there are emotional responses and that there are responsibilities that come with that leadership. If you are in a leadership position, that doesn't mean you don't get to feel traumatized, but it means that you have a responsibility to put those feelings aside and act in a way that keeps your people safe and that doesn't create more harm. And that is what the Israeli government failed to do, in my opinion, right? It wasn't that they were not equally traumatized, but it was that they had the responsibility to act in a way that didn't put Israelis, not to mention the rest of the region, in even more danger than they were in before October 7th. So when we talk about some of the things they could have done, I mean, we have targeted strikes, right, on Hamas leaders. They have intelligence. They could have capitalized on the goodwill that they had after October 7th. Everybody was shocked. And they could have gone to allies. They have relationships in the region now. Jordan, Egypt, longstanding relationships, longstanding security cooperation and intelligence cooperation. They had these newfound relationships post-Abraham Accord with countries that have equally impressive intelligence capabilities like the UAE. Um, and so they could have really gotten these countries together to try to figure out a long-lasting and a sustainable response at that moment. Everybody was in agreement that Hamas had overstepped and that they had to be punished, if not completely eradicated, right? And they could have taken advantage of that to create a coalition that went in and did that in a way that was as humane as can be. Because, of course, it was never going to be 100% casualty-free when it comes to civilian casualties. Um, but there's a very large gulf between what they could have done and what they've been doing. Yeah, I think that's a I, that's 
that's very much along my thinking as well. And I, I would say that for for folks who look at this and say, well, you know, you have to eradicate Hamas, there is the challenge. And I think you've talked about this in the interviews about trying to eradicate an ideology versus an organization. Um, and again, if, if you look at what could have been done in terms of being much more clear in holding Hamas accountable and much more clear in supporting um, Palestinian people and ending occupation, challenging the policies that that fuel Hamas, the policies that 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 make that that lead to Hamas having popular support. So, in parallel, those two tracks of of engagement, um, which are very different than what we saw. Um, and and by the, the way, actually, um, there was a poll. I know you're familiar with this poll that was done by the Arab Barometer that was actually released, I think, on October sixth that showed that a large portion of people actually didn't support Hamas, right? Yep. And so that's something else that Israel could have capitalized on. If anything, people were not happy with Hamas the day before October 7th. Um, but here we are three months later, and Palestinians are just being, I mean, I said the word exterminated today. I can't think of another way to describe what's what we've been seeing on the news um, and, and, uh, you know, you have this happening and the, and, and it's seemingly the entire world, you know, all of these countries that speak about human rights and responsibility to protect and, and, and talking about, you know, with, when Russia had invaded Ukraine and how the whole world kind of stood together, we must, we, we must fight against Russian aggression, Russia bombed hospitals, we cannot let this stand and to see the response be so different in Gaza, as if their lives genuinely, literally meant less. How do you expect some people not to then say, well, at least Hamas is doing what no one else will do, which is confront this, this apparatus, this military, this country that's literally destroying us as a people? So I want to I want to put a pin in the some of what you just said because we're going to come back to this the sort of double standard the international law piece of it. Um, I want to zoom out a bit, not yet to the region, and talk about what is already an escalation. So from the start of the war on Gaza, there have been these questions about how it might expand, and I think some people who watch this closely understand that even from the very beginning, it had already expanded. Right, we were seeing significant um, a significant escalation of both Israeli army and Israeli settler activity. And Israeli settlers are effectively an arm of the Israeli government in the West Bank. Um, we saw some stuff happening inside Israel itself against Palestinian citizens of Israel. And then we saw at least one very early strike in Lebanon that killed two Lebanese journalists. Mm -hmm. And there's been more of that. So can you talk about that early? What was what was the right, right from the outset, um, what looked like the beginning of an expansion? And then I'm gonna ask you to talk about Hezbollah and stuff later. Right. Well, if we're talking about the, are you, do you want to talk about the West Bank a little bit in terms of that, that level of violence? The, the West Bank piece of it. And the, in the early days, I think a lot of people still don't remember, or don't understand that. I think it was in the first two weeks of the war. I think it was that early on when Israel, um, when Israel killed the two journalists in South Lebanon who were reporting inside Lebanese sovereign territory. I remember so, that. Those early, early days. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think from the beginning, it was clear what the Israeli government wanted to do and that, it, you know, from the in the beginning, it wasn't what wasn't quite clear was, do they are they deliberately inviting a wider conflict or are they taking this opportunity to 
try to deter a wider conflict, right? Because sometimes those actions can look the same, but mean different things. And you're talking about Lebanon there, not the West Bank. I'm talking about Lebanon, right? Um, so when you have, there's been this tit for tat going on between Israel and Hezbollah and tensions have been really high on and off since 2006. I mean, you remember the war in 2006 was actually devastating for both parties um, and surprisingly devastating for Israel. Israel was not expecting that level um, of response uh, and sort of endurance from Hezbollah. And so both parties since 2006 have been preparing themselves for the next war. Um, Hezbollah replenishing its supplies and Israel retraining its military, kind of, you know, re putting itself in a position where they're like, we cannot un underestimate this enemy. We're going to have to prepare for the next war. It's going to be a big one. And back then, the Israeli government at the time said, to, said, we are not, next time this happens, we are not going to differentiate between Hezbollah as an organization and the Lebanese government, which presumably they did the first time around. You know, they didn't go in and, you know, carpet bomb Beirut, for example. I mean, the, there was a level of separation between the two. And they explicitly stated, the next time this happens, all bets are off. You're taking responsibility as a country. So that's an important point to keep in mind because as everyone knows, Lebanon and the Lebanese have been through so much in the last three years. I mean, the, the port blast, economic crises, political uh, crises. I mean, the Lebanese people are exhausted. They're also traumatized. You'll when I, you'll notice the word trauma come up a lot whenever I talk about this region because I all I think it's an underreported point, but I also think it's important to to acknowledge just how much trauma this region is carrying, especially certain countries in the region. Um, and so Hezbollah is very aware of that. And it's very aware that a war with Israel, especially a war that it chooses, that it starts, is not going to be well received and that there would probably be a massive turn against Hezbollah in Lebanon. And they don't want that. They've never wanted that. So so they've both been kind of doing what they think they need to do to deter the other from starting a war, but also to remind the other, hey, if you do start this war, it's going to be really, really costly. Um, and so in the beginning, when when the journalists were killed, when these uh, sort of cross-border attacks were happening, when Israel was mobilizing people to go to their border with Lebanon, it was unclear whether it was a deterrent stance or whether it was preparing for war. Now, we can look to where we are now and probably it's becoming clearer, um, but that's that's sort of the picture. That was the picture back then. I mean, very quickly, very early on, as you said, there was an escalation in movement. There was an escalation in rhetoric. And of course, there was this tragic loss of life. Uh, of journalists, which has been a pattern that has been continuing, obviously, and tragically in Gaza. And with the West Bank, um, I just wanted to, I pulled up, I wanted to read these statistics um, that I read in an article, uh, an op-ed, I think David Ignatius wrote this. Basically, he was saying in this op-ed that for peace to actually happen, uh, we're going to have to confront some hard realities on the ground. 
And he says settler violence has surged since Hamas's October 7th terrorist assault, which killed approximately 1,200 Israelis. Since then, there have been 343 settler attacks against Palestinians. At least 143 Palestinian households, households with 1,026 people, including 396 children, have been displaced by violence. Settlers have killed eight Palestinians and injured 85, the UN said. Now, this article was written a few weeks ago. This is this is not taking into account what happens now. So as people have been focused on what's happening in Gaza, this has been happening in the West Bank, and it's not getting enough media. It's getting some media attention, but the level to which this demonstrates how unserious Israel is, or at the very least Netanyahu's government is, about peace, about an actual Palestinian state, you have to look at both what's happening in the West Bank as well as what's happening in Gaza, because the settler activity, the outposts, all of that stuff is very deliberately happening to precisely prevent a contiguous, self-sufficient Palestinian state. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think it's worth reminding people that before October 7th, 2023 was um, already on track to be a year of historic levels of Palestinians being killed in the West Bank and of settler violence. So even before October 7th, and then there's been this, this surge after October 7th. Um, so I want to come back to Hezbollah in a second and where things are today, because the escalation in the past few days has been notable. I first want to ask you about the Houthis, because right. I, I, it's it's a fascinating kind of, I think for a lot of people following this in the media, I mean, some of the visuals of, you know, the, the pirates taking a, a cargo ship and I mean, some of the videos from that first cargo ship that was taken looked like video game footage. They didn't look real. Um, but this is something very real. We now have the U.S. and other countries putting out an incredibly strong statement, much stronger than they've put out about anything Israel is doing to Palestinians, but putting down a line in the sand about, you know, we will not permit shipping in the Red Sea to be to be obstructed by by terrorism. I want you to talk to me about what the Houthis are doing. This is the Houthis coming out of Yemen and what what they're what their game is. I mean, is this just, is this about the Palestinians? Is this about Iran? Which I think a lot of people in Washington would say, tell us what we need to know. Right. Well, you're right. I mean, some of the images coming out, it's just, you know, just sort of, you're like, what is happening? Where did these people come from? What are they doing? Um, so the Houthis obviously in Yemen are, have been attacking ships uh, that are traversing the Red Sea on their way to Israel. And they're using the Palestinian cause and what's happening in Gaza to justify what's happening. Um, it's obviously a huge threat to maritime security. It's a, it's a huge threat to trade. Um, you have uh, some companies that are refusing to operate and pausing operations in the Red Sea, you have others that are going all the way around the Cape of Good Hope. Um, and the costs obviously are massively higher because they have to go around a much longer way. And those costs eventually are going to be passed to the consumer. So it's something that affects almost everyone when you come to think of it. So that's why the U.S. and many other countries, I believe it was 13 other countries, along with the U.S. that recently released a statement with very strong language, basically telling the Houthis, we will we will not hesitate to take action, you know, if you don't stop this, because shipping and and maritime security is a big deal for them. Now, you know, it's not I'm for 
to be to be transparent, I'm not an expert on the Houthis and and I'm not an expert on Yemen. I'm just following the situation as it relates to I always want to clarify what I'm an expert expert in and what I'm not. Um, so, um, so when you, you want to look at it in, in the question is, is this Iran, is this Iran unleashing its proxies all over the region? Because it feels like this is a huge moment of weakness for Israel. And if we just, you know, get them from all sides, hit them from all sides that we can finally weaken them. You know, when it comes to Iran, when it comes to Hezbollah, when it comes to, well, Hamas is a bit different, I would say. Um, well, when it comes to Iran in particular, there are those who would argue that Iran as well is not interested in an all-out war. I find it difficult to believe that it's interested in a straight-up hot war with Israel, knowing that the United States would be would be involved. That's not something that's in its interest. But it's more of this very slow bleeding out of very slowly weakening Israel weakening it militarily, weakening it on the international stage. I mean, it's it's a very slow burn, and they believe that they will eventually weaken it to the point where they have an advantage. I don't know what comes after in their mind, but it's that slowness um, that I think drives uh, Iranian policy and sub in the way that their proxies are being mobilized. If you will, if you if I can use that word. Now, if you listen to Hezbollah's secretary general the other day, Hassan Nasrallah, he made this big speech and it was very interesting to hear what he said. And he made a deliberate point to say, you know, Iran doesn't control us. We're not all following orders from Iran. This is a regional resistance movement, but each resistance movement in each separate country will operate according to its own local interests albeit within this overall umbrella of general resistance against Israel and support for the Palestinians. Um, and it wasn't, you know, it was. It, I think he was saying that it wasn't, a, he's very deliberate. He would never say something that wasn't very explicit and very deliberate. He wanted to relay a message that Iran is not necessarily calling all the shots. He wants to relay this message. He's trying to put some distance between what Iran is doing, what the Houthis are doing, and so on, but also making it clear that these organizations are all tied. He mentioned Sir the Iranian-backed groups in Syria and Iraq and the attacks they've been uh, conducting against U.S. personnel in, in uh, and U.S. Um, interests in Syria and Iraq. And so, and he mentioned the Houthis, of course, Hamas is in a, a, an existential war with Israel right now. And then you have Hezbollah. And he, he mentioned all of them and he said, we're all operating under this banner of resistance, but we're all doing what is good for us. So I want to actually, that's exactly the right place to end up on that question, because I want to talk more about Lebanon and Nasrallah and that speech and really the question of further escalation, because when we we talked about this earlier, we talked about the the very beginning of this war, right? You saw the tit for tat on the northern border, 
which I think a lot of people really saw as a, a tit for tat from Israel saying, don't get involved. We don't want to expand. And Hezbollah saying, we're going to respond at the level which says we're responding to this tit for tat, but we're not escalating. Right. Um, that seems to have changed, though, in recent days. We've seen an escalation of Israel's um, activities in Lebanon, not to mention also in Syria. I think for me, most notably, for my own understanding of what an escalation would be, was the assassination of a of a um a Hamas leader in Beirut, mm -hmm. um, which for Hezbollah acting in Beirut versus acting in South Lebanon feels to me like a tangible escalation mm -hmm. um, in terms of the sovereignty of the state of Lebanon. Um, we've seen the targeting of Iranian assets in Syria. Um, it feels to me like what we're seeing is, um, it feels like a demonstration that Israel does want to provoke um, escalation. And I'd be very happy for you to tell me I'm wrong. It really does feel like that. And my own analysis is that, and this is, I'm, I'm speaking for myself here, is that there are elements in Israel that ideologically want and others who tactically believe they need a broader escalation, right. because this is about resetting borders in the region. And this is the way that they're not going to have to deal with accountability for displacing 2 million Palestinians or maybe leaving them out of Gaza altogether because in the fog of a regional war, which leads to a change in borders in various places, um, it'll be like 48. At the end of it, you have a new status quo and political realities will have to accommodate a new geopolitical status quo. So that's my somewhat apocalyptic analysis. Um, what do you think? I wish I could tell you that I wasn't really worried about that scenario. I mean, but not necessarily because I believe that one of the parties is going to make a very deliberate decision to ignite this explosive war that's going to happen in the region. I worry about miscalculation. I worry when, you know, when you talk about that red line, when we talk about red lines, I worry that those red lines are not clear enough that if some with one of the parties is making is 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 conducting an operation that they know that they are breaking a red line. It's again, I'll go back to 2006 when when the Hezbollah Israel war uh, started. Uh, it started ostensibly because Hezbollah kidnapped Israeli soldiers and brought them over the border. That wasn't the first time that they had done that, right? They didn't expect that that would be the spark that set off a war. And that's what I worry about now. I worry about this spark that is not necessarily going to be one that is deliberate, but will nevertheless blow up the region. Now, has, uh, Nasrallah, in his speech, he did say it was after the assassination of Saleh Haruri, of the Hamas leader in Beirut, which was which was a uh, kind of a slap in the face to Hezbollah, given that it happened in, quote unquote, in their neighborhood. Right. But um, you can't say that it was completely out of left field. I mean, in, in fact, if anything, people who have been saying Israel shouldn't be doing what it's doing now, it should be doing more things like targeted assassinations all around the world. So it's not really unexpected that that a senior Hamas leader would be killed, whether it's in southern Lebanon or uh, uh, Turkey or, you know, wherever they may be. Um, and in that sense, that probably gave Nasrallah a little bit of an out in, in the sense that this was not something unexpected 
a lot of people would say this was not something that was unprovoked. And so the fact that he did it, that they did it in southern Lebanon was not ideal for Hezbollah, but Hezbollah could go out, say some strong words, say we're very upset, we are going to retaliate, but not feel the need to save face in a way or start a war in a way that they didn't want to. Right after he said we were going to they we are going to retaliate, Nasrallah also said, but if you come after us in Lebanon, we will not stop. We will, you know, sort of we're not afraid of war and we so, will not stop. So how does that I mean, we know that I think it was yesterday that Israel assassinated a senior Hezbollah leader in South Lebanon. I mean, this is why I say like it really almost feels like there's an egging on element here. Exactly. Um, because I, right I, I was after struck Nasrallah, by the timing. <laughs> right. So because right after Nasrallah says, he's almost letting them off the hook, like, okay, like, we'll retaliate, but don't come after us. And then a few days later, they go after them. And so it definitely seems like a provocation. Um, and I think, I just think that the stakes are so high right now that any, any, of these parties in the region. I'm not talking about Israel because I agree with you that there are some within Israel that are pushing for a war. Um, but I think that these parties that we're talking about, these quote unquote resistance parties in the region will think twice um, before entering a war because you remember, if you think about it, I mean, we have to remember that the difference between these two sides is that if there is an all out regional war, the US is going to come in on the side of one party not the others. And that makes a huge difference, of course. Well, it probably and it, and emboldens the Israelis and it deters the these other parties in a, in a sense until it doesn't, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I the two things that, I, that when I think about this, I think about the fact that the Israeli military doctrine, which existed before October 7th, but has really been sharpened after October 7th, which is, you know, we are the absolute enraged crazy actor we will do whatever we want and whatever we can and and no one will stop us and no one will hold us accountable um you know when you talk about them saying in the last war that next time we won't differentiate and we think about the failure to differentiate between civilians and hezbollah in south lebanon over the years and the incredible damage to to civilian infrastructure and civilian deaths we've seen in previous wars and the airport and all that and you have Israelis basically saying, you saw what we did to Gaza, we'll do that to Beirut. Um, yeah. so that that sort of hangs over it. But the other piece is what I think sort of what you're alluding to is the miscalculation, which can even be, you know, at the point where, you know, Hezbollah shoots a tit for tat rocket and it actually kills an Israeli. I mean, the, you just don't know what's going to trigger that. Oh, no. I, I worry that, that there are those who are looking for that opportunity. Um, on the Israeli side, but that's just the stuff that keeps me up at night. Um, sorry. Um, all right, I have another question. So uh, let's see, how to ask this. So the what Israel is doing in Gaza and beyond at this point, um, it, it fundamentally depends on the international world letting them, right? The international community. It's international support and impunity, first and foremost, from the United States. This is impunity in terms of the US providing weapons, providing funding, providing moral support, providing diplomatic cover, all of that stuff. Um, so in this context, I want you to talk as someone who served at a very you know senior level in the administration, and you know about these things, talk about the Biden administration. Based on your experience, um, how, what, 
how do you think the Biden administration is thinking about this? The choices that it has in front of itself right now? I mean, Israel is always a problematic policy question, anything involving Israel. But how do you think this administration understands its policy, what its goals are, what the objectives are when it talks about no daylight and bear hugs? We keep hearing the term bear hug. And how does this policy serve or fail to serve what one might objectively say are U.S. interests, national security interests in the region and in the world, including with respect to the risk of a possible escalation to a war with Iran that Israel seems to want? Wow. <laughs> How to answer that? All right, I asked long questions. Take any piece of that you like. Okay. So I was a Middle East advisor in the in the at the Pentagon in the Middle East office. I covered many portfolios. I was there during the Arab Spring uh when a lot of conversations were happening around US interests in the region and partnerships and leverage. You know, the word leverage was used a lot around the Arab Spring. I was in many, many meetings with the Secretary of Defense and the top leadership of the Pentagon when we were talking about some of these really tough issues. Um, and so um, this idea of unwavering U.S. support for Israel, I know that it is hard for some people to imagine that the U.S. could be tough with Israel behind the scenes, given how unwavering its support is for Israel in public. But I can attest to the fact that it is true, the conversations behind closed doors are tough. And it is true that Netanyahu, I can't think of one person in the US government, past or present, um, that actually enjoys dealing with him or likes him. But at the end of the day, none of that stuff really matters, right? What matters is what results, what results are we seeing? How It doesn't matter how many, I remember when we were working, when I, when, um, during the Arab Spring, when the Pentagon would release the number of phone calls that, that then Secretary of Defense Hegel was having with then Minister of Defense Sisi in Egypt, as a way to demonstrate how tough we were being with the Egyptians, as if the number of phone calls were that that's it in in and in and of itself, we had ten phone calls. That means that we're being well, well what's happening as a result of those phone calls? Yes, give us credit for process, not for results. <laughs> I mean, you sorry, you uh, yeah, you've been in d c long enough. You know how important the process is. Um, so when we look at the actual results, though, of what is happening, so so ostensibly this bear hug strategy, which is basically it means that the U.S. hugs Israel really tightly in public, no daylight between them, uh, so as not to give partly so as not to give Israel's enemies any room to to think that there's space that they could take advantage of between the U.S. and Israel partly because of domestic political considerations. I mean, you know more than anyone you've worked in this field for so long, U.S. support for Israel traditionally is a bipartisan topic. It's not a controversial topic in the U.S. So there are many reasons for the no daylight strategy, but ostensibly that was always meant to be at least partly so that they could have really tough conversations because the reasoning is you're much more likely to take tough criticism and advice from a friend than you would from a foe or from someone who's criticizing you in public. 
Well, that's a great strategy on paper, but if they're not taking advice from friends or foes, then isn't it maybe time to shift that strategy? And isn't it maybe time to start thinking about how this is affecting the region, how this is affecting U.S. interests? And as I keep saying again and again, Israeli interests as well, because if it is in Israel's if Israel's objectives are to maintain long-term peace and security in the region, having setting the region on fire and creating enemies far and wide when you're a tiny country in the middle of you know this this sea of enemies that you're going to create, I fail to see how that makes Israel safer in the long run. And I fall to the US government for not being tougher with Israel for not doing more to say, if this isn't helping you and if you're not going to do anything about it, we're going to do some stuff that you may not like, but trust me, we're doing it for you and we're also doing it for everyone else in the region whose lives you're upending. Yeah, I mean, I just two thoughts I would add on that. The, the first one is I think it's worth reminding people that the no daylight strategy has not always been US policy. No, no daylight really came in with President Obama. Um, if you go back to, and I, I did my analysis, you may recall, of UN, uh, U.S. votes at the U.N. Security Council when everyone mm -hmm. was saying that Obama couldn't possibly vote no or abstain. It would be a historic betrayal of Israel. And it's like, yeah, no, every president before Obama opposed Israel, usually multiple times at the U.N. Security Council. It wasn't until Obama came in that a new narrative, an incredibly resilient narrative was created that is, that is ahistorical which says that no one ever criticizes Israel. Every other administration, you can go back, um, you know, to pretty every administration before um, before Obama and even Bush, um, set Bush the sun. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing- And, and you can I just say something on that, Laura, real yeah. quick? Because I think it's, that's right. And and if someone were to say, well, why did, why did this start under Obama? I mean, what was Obama thinking? It's also important to remind people that Obama was- a non-proliferation president and one of his biggest goals was to have a deal with Iran that would reduce Iran's nuclear arsenal. And of course, to Israel, that was just, I mean, you know, how could you? You're putting us at risk. How could you do this? And so I think President Obama felt the need to even more, you know, sort of outwardly, inwardly, in all the ways, very, very supportive of Israel to to let it be known um, that this deal, these negotiations with Iran, what he was doing with Iran was not going to come at the expense of Israel. So I think that also played Absolutely. a role. Absolutely. I mean, President Obama came under a, a level of, of scrutiny and criticism and and really, I mean, slander related to what people said, thought his views were on Israel. It just, um, you know, the history at some point will will report on that, I think, and and it, it was it was horrible to live through. Um, but the other piece that I'm thinking of, as you talk about not serving Israel's interests, I think one of the challenges for or one of the, the frustrations that I think a lot of us who work on this policy have had over the years is another disconnect, which is the disconnect between how U.S. policy behaves as if what as if Israel is saying these are our interests and how Israel behaves in terms of demonstrating what its actual interests and objectives are. And that mm -hmm. speaks to Israel's long-term objectives vis-a-vis -vis the West Bank, vis-a-vis -vis regional ties, 
um, you know, and it, the the whole, I, I would say at this point, farce around the two state solution, where you talk about, you know, decade, more than a decade of talking about one a two state solution, which the US chose to focus all of its energies on with other talking about this, we're still saying we're committed to this. And we're going to ignore, you know, my mom says, listen to what they say, but watch their feet, their feet are walking in a very different direction. And US right. policy, because it didn't want to engage um, oppositionally with what Israel was doing, focused on what was being said and not on the feet, um, which is actually a really good segue back to Gaza, um, where we have a rare moment of um, correlation between what, for the most part, Israeli officials across the board have been saying since early on and what the policy is. And that's a policy that looks a lot like ethnic cleansing and extermination. And indeed, um, later this week, the International um, Court of Justice, um, I keep saying the International Criminal Court, it's important to make the distinction, it's not the same. The International right. Court of Justice is getting set to have a, 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 a sort of preliminary hearing on a South African petition accusing Israel of engaging in genocide or um, permitting incipient genocide, I think is this legal terminology. Um, so I want you to talk a little bit about that. And you know, we know the Biden administration is already doubling down in defense of Israel, saying that the, the South African case is, 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 is not, has no basis in fact, I believe was the statement that was used, which was kind of weird because it's like a very, very long document, which is right. you know 90% of it is facts and 10% is argumentation. But a lot of those facts are just statements being made by all these officials basically saying, yes, our goal here is to take all or most of Gaza and get the people out of it. I want you to talk about what all of this means with respect to something you mentioned earlier, which is international law, human rights, battle against racism and dehumanization, all these things that we refer to as the post-World War II rules-based international world order. Can you talk about what this, what this means going forward and how it looks if you are perhaps not the most liberal leader someplace else in the region or the world seeing Israel basically demanding impunity for doing all these things, or if you're maybe a citizen of another country who has an affiliation or a, a, a an affinity for Palestinians, when you see that Palestinian lives maybe don't matter, C can you talk about that? Yeah, that that's been really tough to watch. I mean, you know, I have to be honest. Even today, watching Secretary Blinken's press conferences, things that he's been saying throughout his trip to the region. I mean, this has now been his fourth trip to the region. I think his fifth to Israel, if I'm if I'm correct, uh, if I'm counting correctly. And to sort of see the, the statements that are coming out of Blinken, of the State Department, how they have they have become farther and farther removed from reality over the last three months. The, the statements have stayed fairly the same, you know, pretty much the same uh, civilian. Well, not in the first few weeks. Eventually, they started talking about civilian casualties and the need to conduct for Israel to conduct itself within international humanitarian law. Uh, they talked, of course, usually with verbs like should and not should. must. Right. Um you know, in fact, someone flagged something that that I almost didn't catch initially was that um, Secretary Blinken today said, as opposed to saying, um, you know, Israel 
has the right to defend itself. He said something like Israel has the right to prevent another October 7th. And you can read into that what you like and and why he chose Prevent, to say preventive self-defense. That's going to be one of the arguments Israel uses to defend itself. Right. South African case. Because, um, <laughs> you know, self-defense is fairly clear, but like preventing another October 7th. I mean, that's it's a bit more vague, let's just say. So it's been hard to watch these statements because you you're you have this you have this trip that Biden is is going on. He's talking to all of the regional leaders and then he goes to Israel to sort of present, you know, to to brief them on his discussions in the region and then to talk about a way forward. And at the same time, you just flip the channel, you go to Al Jazeera, you go to any of the Arabic channels that are showing things that the US or international media isn't showing and you just it's shocking the level of of dissonance the level of of just like am i watching two different completely different worlds right now so i say that not just to to lament you know the fact but also to um to to answer your point about us credibility about you know when the us goes out and talks about what russia is doing in ukraine and and saying you know talking about crimes that are being committed in Ukraine. I remember at some point the U.S. was saying, well, the Putin is saying that uh, there's no such thing as a Ukrainian. And that was like a really big thing for the U.S. administration. That proves that he wants to get rid of them all and that, you know, these are crimes. These are crimes against humanity. Look at what's happening now. How is that different? And that's what people are asking. How is that different? Is it actually just different because it is happening where it is? Is it because it's a Muslim population? Is it because it's the Middle East where you expect these things, you know, where not you, but people, some people expect say, oh, that's what happens over there, ancient hatreds. You know, I mean, when you have an expectation of a certain people to act in a certain way, does that change how you view them in the context of international human rights law, international international law is international law something that is just as king abdullah of jordan said is it just for some people for some nations for some religions and when you look at the way the us is acting when you look at the way germany i mean you can name the majority of these really the uk where um, i live in london now and you look at the way that they're act that they're reacting to what is clearly the extermination of an entire people, and you start to ask yourself, well, does this just not apply to them? Because if this were happening anywhere else, I was thinking today about this, about the the, the International Court of Justice case, and I, again, someone was saying, um, I was reading this on online, that the mainstream media was not going to be covering the preliminary hearings. And I just remember thinking, wow, if this was any other nation, if this were any other case and the word genocide was mentioned and there was going to be televised hearings about it at the International Court of Justice, would the BBC and CNN and other channels be covering it? So that's what a lot of people, I mean, people who are going out protesting, people who are standing up in sol solidarity of Palestinians, you know, there, and this, this bothers me. It's like when some people make this about, 
religion, you know, this is anti-Semitic or this is about Jews, this is about Jewish people. It it takes away from something really important to people who are protesting. I'm not saying all protesters are, but we're not going to go into the nuance, you know, nuances of people. Of course, when there are millions of people protesting, there's going to be bad people protesting things. But overall, people are just devastated. They are traumatized by what they are seeing as in front of them, by the images that they're seeing in front of them. And it's almost even more so when you think that the U.S. should, you know, normally the U.S. would be out there talking about human rights, talking about that, you know, and none of this is happening. And you you have to ask yourself, why? Why do, why do the Palestinians matter less? Why is this not shocking everybody? Um, and, and I think that, I think that, you know, it's, I don't say these words lightly. You know, when I talk, when I say this, that racism has an element to play here. When I say that dehumanization has an element to play here, when you literally look at someone and you see them as less than human, or at the very least, you see them as more prone to that kind of violence. It's, it's like, well, that's just what you do. So it's almost like, you know, you this way, you, you guys like, it's not the same as us when this happens to us because this doesn't happen to us. This doesn't happen here. Um, I don't know if you if you remember this. I'm sure you remember this, but in uh, in Ukraine when there were Ukrainian refugees coming into, uh, you know, going into neighboring countries, and there were all of these reports, just journalists saying things like, "But this, you know, these refugees that are blonde." They have blue eyes like this just this doesn't happen to Europeans, you know, and it's it's that it's that it's it's saying that quiet part out loud. This doesn't happen to Europeans. This doesn't happen to Americans. But of course, it happens to people in the Middle East. So. Yeah, I I, I agree. I think the, the question of, of the racism and, and dehumanization is, is profound here. And I, I look at just the just the difference in how people are dealing with with journalists. The number of Palestinian yeah. journalists yeah. who've been killed, um, you know, you think of the the, the absolute um, cor absolutely correct um, celebration of lives and and the courage of Ukrainian journalists um, being targeted by Russia, and it's a tiny percentage <laughs> compared to the number of Palestinian journalists who are being targeted and and being killed in Gaza, and even the journalist community is not really coming out um, in any serious kind of support. It's it's just striking, let alone you know universities defending academia or the medical community defending you know health health professionals all of whom are being targeted it's been it's been incredibly um uh, just it, it it's it's shattering in many ways um i want to end and this is the last question and I, this is sort of a, i don't want to give you i, I don't want to like throw a gotcha question at the end but this is the the one that i want answered which is if something could change today and thinking as someone who's been inside policy making what would it look like i mean i i you can't undo three months of bad policy and probably between 28 and 30,000 dead palestinians um it's horrific that's not going to be un, you, you can't roll that back but looking forward is there um a policy that does not continue down the road um, towards more Palestinian deaths and potentially wider escalation policy from the U.S. and and what would that look like? 
you know, honestly, it's just hard to answer that question because if if where we are now has not resulted in a shift in policy and has not resulted in things that like conditionality on on aid to Israel, um, on, I mean, <laughs> what could, right? And so, I mean, your question, it's a good question, but I almost feel like it's kind of an impossible one to answer because it, it it sounds like a fairy tale. Like, oh, if if I could have anything in the world, you know, what could I have? It's I I would like to see the U.S. use some of its leverage with Israel um, in a way that shows it that it's serious um, about what it's saying. Um, the U.S. is sounding more and more um, impotent, toothless. Um, hypocritical. I mean, all of these things are going to come back to bite the U.S. I mean, we're talking now about entire communities in the U.S. not wanting to vote for President Biden in the next election, right? I mean, these these things, I, I know that there are analysts out there and there are people out there. Many of them are European uh, and American, to be fair, who are seeing this from the European perspective, the Western perspective, the um, where where they the metrics that they're looking at are things like is the U.S. still able to conduct trade deals? You know, is the U.S. able to do X on the international stage? And that's what they're looking at in terms of measuring U.S. credibility. They're not thinking about it, of course, in the way that you mentioned earlier, which is any country that is. what was the word you said, less less than liberal, a leader that is less than liberal. Now, when they want to act in certain ways in their country and the U.S. steps up and says, well, actually, you can't do that. That's against international law or you're killing too many civilians. Who's going to listen? What leg do we have to does, does the U.S. have to stand on when it talks to people? So you can look at U.S. credibility in different ways. It depends on your perspective. But when it comes to things like respect for civilian life, respect for international law, um, these are serious things. And these are things that have been great. These are concepts that have been greatly damaged and degraded by what by this unconditional uh, support that the U.S. has had for Israel, the level of destruction, the level of trauma. I mean, you talk about these journalists, you talk about people's lives. Um are never going to be the same after this for gener this is this is generational trauma that we're talking about now and you have people talking you know when you look at people in charge sometimes i think about this i don't know why this thought comes to me but i think a lot about this from just from a human perspective right this war is over this administration is gone um you know this this british government is gone labor comes in All of these people who are in decision-making places, their lives go on after this. They're going to get great jobs, book deals, law firms, consulting firms. They're going to make lots of money. They're going to. It's going to. They're going to write books about what they should have done when they were in government, right? But for millions of people, their lives and their children's lives and their grandchildren's lives are never going to be the same again. And I keep coming back to that because if that's not a responsibility in itself to be more, um, to be more 
what's the word, you know, strict to be more tough with Israel, to try to stop what's happening, even though what's happened has already been extremely painful and extremely traumatic. But if those generations of traumatized people and homeless people, we're talking now in Palestine, people who are going to lose their homes, never to go back again, people who will um, just lose faith in, in humanity, if that's not reason enough to do the right thing, well, there are many other reasons. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it should be one of them. It's uh, when you're talking about. It, I'm also thinking about the the generation of children who are who've lost one or more parent, generation of children who've lost one or more limbs. I mean, this is the 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 traumas here are going to be. Um, they're, they're just it, it's they're so profound. It really is apocalyptic in many ways. Okay. I feel like. You know, when I look, when I, I've been asked the question, what should the what should the Biden administration do now if they're going to try to like you know get on a better course? And I don't have an answer. I mean, I, I was on a call today talking about what's the the the, the um, International Court of Justice case, and part of the analysis of 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 people around that case is the U.S. has to oppose it because if they don't oppose it, they could be held accountable under the Genocide Convention as a party to commit this to the genocide for not stopping it for enabling it by, by, by not engaging, by continuing to provide weapons. There's a certain amount of kind of in for a penny, in for a pound, or we're, we're so invested in this, we can't let go. Um, or you know, I was thinking of the tiger by the tail, you don't dare let go because um, you've got it. But, you know, at this point, I listen sometimes to, to Secretary Blinken, and I try to read between the lines of what he's saying. And what it almost sounds like is, we really want Israel to stop talking about what it's doing because talking about it makes it worse and hurry up and do what it's going to do and get to the next stage so we can be the good guys helping in the, you know, saving the day after the fact, right? Please get to the end of the war, but we're not going to stop you and what you're doing along the way, which is just, I mean, it's just gutting. I mean, trying to trying to figure out what that means in terms of humanity and morality and international law in the place of the U.S. And I don't know what that means for U.S. leadership going forward. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about U.S. leadership. I've already asked you last question, but I, I saw somebody. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, Blinken, I, Blinken, I've already, I've, I think I've said, you know, I've said, I've said what I've said. I mean, the U.S., I wish I could say this in a more organized, you know, organize my thoughts a bit better. The U.S., I think, I think I'm going to be a bit blunt about this, if I may. I don't think the U.S. cares much if it loses credibility in the Middle East amongst certain populations, amongst, I don't think they care about what activists think about them. I think they think the, the same way these analysts that I mentioned earlier are thinking about. They're thinking about trade. They're thinking about, you know, things that matter to them. And and what is happening right now, and this is not my opinion. You can just see the 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 result of the last three months. Um, I don't think that they care how this is going to affect the U.S. I think they think people have short memories. Um, even when when we talk about the elections, you know, um, and and you hear people saying, well, we're not going to vote for Biden, you know, after what he's done and his support. And then you have people bullying them and harassing them online, being like, oh, so you want to be responsible for Trump coming back? 
don't put that on them. You can't put that on them. And I think the Biden administration is relying a bit too much on people to say, well, we hate what he's done, but we don't want Trump. I think they're very much underestimating just how much how repulsed people are about what at, at what they've seen and what that's going to mean for them come election day. Um, and I think they should care more about that. But you get that there's this sense of arrogance, I want to say, right? It's like there's a, there's this air of arrogance that nothing will harm us, nothing will touch us, you know, this too bad, but people will forget and we'll go on to the next People's people's um, memories are short. You know, you had this picture of Secretary Blinken standing next to MBS. How long has it been, right? Since the since since Biden said wouldn't even pick up the phone to talk to MBS, uh, the the leader of Saudi Arabia. So they, there's a sense that things will change and this is not going to be as big of a deal as as people say it will. But I quickly, Laura, wanted to just come back to this idea. I, I, wasn't, I agree with you. I think they're wrong on this. I think people are going to read yeah. them. I think this is much bigger yeah. deal than you think. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, and I, that's what that's why I'm talking about the arrogance factor that they don't either they don't want to believe it or they're too arrogant in their sense that this doesn't matter you know, we're just going to keep going. Some people are going to be upset, but it is going to matter. It really is going to matter. I don't think people are going to get over what we've seen in the last three months. But to the point about um, what could the U.S. do differently, um, you could also flip that question around and say, well, what could the U.S. at least not do That's that's really, it could not bypass Congress to send an expedite assistance to the Israelis while they're doing what they're doing in Gaza, right? I mean, at the very least, don't rush the stuff to them. Do you know what I mean? But there are also ways to delay these arms shipments without making a big deal about it. You don't have to announce it in the press. You know, there's paperwork, there are delays, there are processes to come full circle to our, in our discussion about processes in Washington. There are processes that have to be if you know Josh Paul is great on this because he he's the state department official that resigned he talks a lot about the processes that are generally in place when it comes to sending military assistance to countries that we send to and there are meetings and discussions and checks and balances and all of that stuff and you could bury shipments in those discussions for months on end thereby delaying shipments without necessarily saying that you're delaying them right but they're doing quite the opposite. They're expediting them. So that's one tangible thing that I can think of just to answer your question. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I I, I sort of feel like that we're, we're two months too late almost for, for those sort of like, like two months ago, I was saying that someone asked me this question. I said, at the minimum, they need to start articulating and demonstrating a duty of care for Palestinian lives. I feel like January 9th, 2024 is too late um, for anyone to take that seriously. Um, but that doesn't mean it wouldn't matter. I could be wrong. All right. We could continue on. Yeah, it is I know. <laughs> so much fun talking to you about these incredibly depressing things. I so appreciate your insights. Um, 
Thank you so much, Jasmine, for joining me today. I have to do the, the official outro. Thank you for joining me today. And thank you to our listeners for tuning into this episode of Occupied Thoughts. Please make sure to check out the website, www.fmep.org, for more content on Palestine and Israel. Make sure you check out, you can subscribe on uh, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. And you can check out our other podcasts, um, including the videos on YouTube. I'll also have in the notes to this podcast links to Jasmine's um, Twitter, and a longer bio and she has a website so you can learn more about her amazing work um and i hope to have you back again jasmine if you'll let me so thank you so much i would love that all right and with that we are going to sign off for this episode of occupied thoughts thank you very much